0: Ahoy there me hearties and welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast. My name is Matt Valor and this is episode one of series two, the second voyage. We completed the maiden voyage earlier this year and I've been hiding in Smuggler's Cove with some rum, planning this next adventure and finally we've cast off, we've set sail to the seven seas. Well, it's been eight months since we weighed anchor at the end of the Maiden Voyage, and uh, I've missed doing this, to be honest, but it takes a lot of preparation, so I've been spending my time translating and reading and planning. There's been a lot going on for me, um, but it's great to be back, and uh, I'm quite excited about this voyage. We're going to cover a much bigger chunk of the Bible than we did in the Maiden Voyage. In the Maiden Voyage, we just did the prologue to Genesis, just those first 11 chapters. And I chose to do it like that because they are such foundational stories. They're so well known. But actually, in the process of retranslating them into English, we were able to uncover some of the subtleties about the way they've been framed and the way that they could actually be framed very differently. And I think we were able to tell a very different story that works as a kind of origin myth. These are stories that have shaped, materially shaped, the world in which we all live right now. And so we focused in on these very specific short stories in order to retell them. But in this voyage, we're sailing much further. We're going to go through the entire rest of what's called the law, the Torah. So that's the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it's a massive chunk of text. Now I think we're going to do this in a few more episodes than we did in the Maiden Voyage. That was just eight episodes. Uh, I think this one will be somewhere in the region of 12 to 15, but until it's done I can't be certain. New since the last voyage, I've set up a Bible Pirate Patreon page. Uh, I need to make this Voyage Sustainable. You can find the page at patreon.com slash bible pirate. Recording this podcast is actually a massive undertaking for me because of all the planning work that goes in, the time it takes to retranslate, the preparation and research. So Patreon is a way that you can support that. Uh, Obviously, I want to keep the podcast free so that anybody can have access to it. But if it's something that you can do to support this, then you can make a pledge uh, as low as $1 per episode on the Bible Pirate Patreon page, uh, and that will help me be able to keep this going over the long term. Massive thanks and shout out to the patrons who have already pledged. Uh, You are the legends that have joined the Bible Pirate crew early on and helped me get this second voyage up and running. I honestly couldn't do it without you, so I really am very grateful. We have got an incredible story to cover through this voyage with so many highs and lows and twists and turns that I think tug at some of the most profound questions about what it is to be a human being. But it all starts with one man who's become known as the father of them all. And we're just going to begin his story today through the lens of... Star Wars and some Greek mythology and the writing of a man called Luke uh, and all of that being brought together by a book called Mutiny, which I mentioned in the last episode of the previous voyage, Mutiny, Why We Love Pirates and How They Can Save Us by a man called Kester Bruin. And I love this book. Uh, it really inspired me with the pirate idea. Uh, and I'm going to kind of talk you through it and bring Abraham into the mix of that story to get us going on this second voyage. Kester Bruin takes you on a journey from the emergence of pirates as we know them in the early 18th century. The context is important, he says. This is a time when the British, the Spanish and the Dutch empires were fighting for control of this golden triangle between West Africa, the Caribbean and Europe. Each of these powers was forcibly stealing people as slaves from West Africa, shipping them in horrendous conditions over to the Americas, and then forcing them to work under hard labour conditions in order to create profit, which was then brought back to Europe. And in order to do that, these powers needed crews, skilled seamen who would work hard for very little pay and very poor living conditions, normally because they had no choice. Often they were forced into service in these trading ships, that were supported by the various imperial navies. And so the pirates emerge from crews who decide that they aren't going to take it anymore. They're not going to suffer the indignity and the injustice of being forced to work in this way for somebody else's profit. So the pirates are the ones who had the courage to mutiny, take their own ships and live outside the law but they were not entirely lawless. They rejected the imperial law of their former masters, but amongst themselves, they created pirate codes. They were often much more advanced from our point of view than any of the ways that they were treated otherwise. These were codes that enforced the sharing of wealth, that made all the men equals, that provided for them in case of injury. We don't have to celebrate everything that the pirates did to appreciate that the pirate code and the act of mutiny created a possibility outside this highly oppressive imperial rule that opened up autonomy, that gave agency to men who had none, that terrorized the rule of an unjust law with an alternative that was outside its control. So I want to take the pirate idea seriously through this voyage, because this is a voyage that is exploring the law. And I want to know how that law relates to our human agency, our sense of empowerment or autonomy, that idea that is so central and sacred to our modern imagination. And right at the start of this voyage, I want to recap the very end of chapter 11 of Genesis, the, the kind of bridge between that prologue and this story of Abraham and his descendants that we're going to begin. Because I think it reflects some of these pirate questions. So I'm going to read uh, my new retranslation. This is from the unauthorized version. A long time ago, in a land far from my own, there lived a man called Terah, a descendant of Shem. He lived with his family in an ancient city called Ur, on the fertile plain where the great rivers merge and drag their mattress of silt into the Persian Gulf. Terah's youngest son, Haran, died, leaving two granddaughters, Melka and Iska, and a grandson, Lot. So Terah took his whole family and left Ur, heading northwest along the path of the Euphrates, up past Babylon, to a place on the modern Turkey-Syria border, just north of Aleppo, called Haran. I suspect the place was called something else back then, but Terah's family turned out to be quite influential, so the name of his lost son stuck the middle son, Nahor, married Haran's daughter, Milka. Terah also had a daughter with a different woman. That daughter's name was Sarai, and she was married to Terah's eldest son, who went by the name of Abraham. So, why is this a pirate story? Well, one of the most compelling things that Kester Bruin does in Mutiny is to describe the economic blockage that was being enforced by the various imperial powers. And he not only traces this in 18th century European colonial battles in the mid-Atlantic, but also in the emergence of copyright around books and films and other ways that we use the idea of piracy today, that all of these have an economic component and it's to do with the extent to which people have access to the means of production in a kind of classical Marxist critique of capitalism, that there are people with wealth who invest in the production of commodities and then reap all of the profit from that creation. And the workers, the creators, whoever it is that actually is involved in generating that wealth, see very little of it and that this is an economic blockage, and this is what gives rise to piracy. The first mutineers choose the spectre of a certain death sentence because the power to keep and share the wealth that they plunder from the rich feels like a better choice in life than to constantly work for the rich for almost no pay. The blocked economy is the one where those who create the wealth have no access to that wealth. Now if you listen to The Maiden Voyage, in episode 7 we dealt with Ched Meyer's reading of Genesis 1-11 to and the insights of anarcho-primitivism, which explore how early hunter-gatherer societies were more egalitarian and more able to share their wealth than agrarian societies, and that this is a particular way of reading the story of Cain and Abel that Cain's offering was unacceptable because it was based from an agrarian model, whereas Abel's offering was acceptable because he was the nomadic pastoralist. And the reason that those are valued differently by Yahweh is that the agrarian economy creates forms of violence reflected in the character of Cain. And the reason they do that The reason the agrarian economy creates that violence is that it puts down roots in land and from that stable agrarian economy emerges the city-state because it's necessary to police the borders of viable arable land. King's tax farmers in exchange for military protection and male violence is celebrated as a public good. But the cost is the emergence of patriarchy and an increasingly blocked economy. And so the very basis of everything that we call civilization occurs when people stop moving around with herds and start planting crops. And in the history of humanity, this happens first in the Fertile Crescent, the land in which this story takes place. It's an arc of land that ends down in the fertile region of the Nile Delta. It tracks up through Palestine to the southern border of Turkey, northern Syria today. And then it tracks back down the two great rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris, all the way to the Persian Gulf. And in that tract of land by the Euphrates is Babylon, famous as the imperial city, as is Egypt at the other end of the Fertile Crescent, the two great imperial powers in the biblical narrative. But before the Babylonian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar, there was the ancient Babylonian Empire of Hammurabi. But before that even, at the very birth of civilization. At the birth of the idea of the city-state, when agriculture had bedded down and formed this new way of living in the world, there was one great city in the Sumerian Empire and that city was Ur. And so when Terra leaves Ur, he is leaving the very centre of the newly blocked economy. He sets out from Ur To go all the way into the land of Canaan. But he doesn't make it because he settles in Haran. So let's return to Mutiny and Kester Bruin's reading of Star Wars. In the relationship between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, says Kester Bruin, we have an example of the blocked economy that gives rise to piracy at the level of the psychological. What made the pirates so terrifying was their willingness to embrace death. There was a certain death sentence on all of their heads. Anyone who was caught would be executed without question. But the pirates danced with the devil and made the skull and crossbones their friend and returned to haunt the merchant ships and the imperial navies that protected them. By choosing death, they terrorised the powerful. They became dead to the empire in order to live. Now, as someone who is absolutely against the death penalty, except in the case of people who make plot spoilers for which there is no forgiveness, then I need to say a plot spoiler coming up for anyone Whoever you are, I don't know why this would be the case, but maybe there are still some people out there who haven't watched the original Star Wars. Okay, there's a major plot spoiler coming. In The Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader faces down Luke Skywalker and tries to persuade him to join the dark side. He's realized, says Kester Bruin, how powerful Luke has become and sees him now as a worthy recruit for the Empire. And Luke says, I'll never join you. You killed my father. And it's the big reveal that Darth Vader says, (gasps) I am your father. That was a poor impression. But anyway, Luke has the moment of no. And the choice he makes is to jump. He'd rather die than join the Empire. He'll die to his father rather than become like him. But in the following film, in The Return of the Jedi, where Luke is back and in a final showdown with the Emperor, it's Luke's unwillingness to give in, to join the dark side, that eventually leads to the situation where Darth Vader throws the Emperor into the abyss. Somehow, this part of Darth Vader that is redeemable, is only redeemable by the choice his son makes to abandon him. If Luke hadn't rejected his father, Darth Vader could never have been redeemed. Now there's powerful archetypal psychology going on here, says Kester Bruin, that at some point everybody has to make the choice to move on from their parents, and that every parent knows that at some point this death must take place for this child to individuate themselves to become a responsible person with agency in the world they have to move on each of us has to move on from our parents in some sense die to their power and their rule and so we reach that moment in chapter 12 of Genesis again this is my retranslation Terah had intended to continue on to Canaan, but he settled in Haran and eventually died there. But Yahweh said to Abraham, get out of your country, your family and the protection of your father's house. Go to a new land that I'll show you. I'm going to make you a great nation and your name will be revered. People will invoke you for their protection and prosperity. And I shall bless those who bless you and curse anyone who curses you. Everyone on the Adama, that's the earth, will find blessing through you. So Abram left with Sarai and his nephew Lot. They'd acquired a lot of possessions in Haran, which all went with them including many slaves who were part of Abraham's household, as was ancient nomadic custom. They travelled south and went down into Canaan, to Shechem and the great tree of Moreh. Yahweh appeared to Abraham there and said, I will give this land to your children. So Abraham built an altar to Yahweh by the great tree, and another further south in the hill country west of Jericho, where he pitched his tents between the towns of Bethel and Ai. Then, bit by bit, Abraham journeyed south into the semi-desert of the Negev. And so the beginning of this story is the family that leaves the great imperial city of Ur and makes for the marginal lands away from the centre of this blocked economy. But Terah, who had intended to make it all the way to Canaan, stops in Haran. He won't go on. And Yahweh appears to Abraham and says, get out from your father's house. Get out from under his shadow. Leave him behind and follow me to a new land. This is the pirate playing at the level of the political and the economic and also at the level of Of the psychological and the social. But the pirate is not pure. The pirate is not a utopia. Pirates pillage and plunder. The pirate is an odd hero to celebrate. This is part of the conundrum that it seems provokes Kester Bruin to write this book after he says he takes his son to this fifth pirate themed birthday party of the year and notes that he's yet to be invited to a single aggravated robbery-themed party. The point is, you can't reduce piracy to aggravated robbery. It's more creative than that. There is a legitimacy to it that makes it ambivalent. Kester Bruin refers to the American anarchist writer Hakim Bey, who calls the spaces created by piracy temporary autonomous zones which are places that just for a time become liberated it's not a permanent state of affairs and for me this is where the ambivalence the ethical ambivalence of the pirate comes into play that this isn't a permanent solution to how the world works but it is a temporary solution Now, Kester Bruin doesn't take the idea of the temporary autonomous zone into his psychological reading of the pirate, but I want to do that. Most of what we're doing when we're doing something pirate is creating space away from a dominant economy, a dominant way of speaking, a dominant way of relating in order to temporarily experiment with something alternative. And so to come back to Luke Skywalker, the rejection of Darth Vader is real. The rejection of the Empire is real. But in the end, the rebellion comes back to the Empire because that's how it makes sense of itself. It doesn't exist except outside the Empire. It's defined by what it's rebelling against. Kester Bruin says that Luke Skywalker achieves the redemption of Darth Vader precisely because he genuinely rejects Darth Vader's empire. He says, Luke now becomes far more fearful for Vader because he has stared death in the face and taken its kiss. He has refused to take his father's path and so opened up the possibility that another path is possible. And I think that that point is really powerful. But at the same time, Luke Skywalker doesn't move on and live as if Darth Vader isn't real. He doesn't abandon his father. In the end, he comes back to defeat him and everything he has worked so hard to build. He creates a temporary autonomous zone in that relationship that allows this new powerful character to emerge. And only then... Is Darth Vader's redemption possible? Though never certain. The pirate relationship is no guarantee that anything will really change. So this pirate story at the beginning of Genesis with its pirate pastoralist nomads who leave the blocked economy of Ur and this pirate Abraham who leaves the blocked relationship with his father who won't move on is just as ambiguous and ambivalent and unstable but still we need to go one step deeper and take the pirate to the level of the theological because where Kester Bruin goes next is really fascinating. He reads Homer's Greek odyssey and Luke's story of the prodigal son through the lens of the pirate. In the odyssey Odysseus is trying to get home to Ithaca after the Trojan Wars to his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus, but he is continually prevented from doing so by the gods. And yet, says Kester Bruin, the gods can be read as the psychology of Odysseus, the Poseidon on one side and Athena on the other, war, violence, sexual adventure on the one side, and wisdom, virtue, family on the other. The battle that Odysseus finds himself subjected to the whims of Poseidon, always working against him and having to be helped along the way by Athena, is in fact the cosmic canvas onto which Odysseus projects all his inner turmoil, the struggles by which he can't decide to go home. Or stay away. In his hubris he declares to the Cyclops that he is nobody to trick him which leads to the death of Poseidon's son and irks his rage against Odysseus. It's hubris because Odysseus doesn't think he is nobody, he really thinks he is somebody. And somehow that hubris keeps him from choosing the life that he says he always dreams of, the life back home with his wife and son. He's too much to be there, too much to be limited in that way. But it's Telemachus, his son, who comes looking for him. Telemachus, whose name means far from war, helped by Athena, the antithesis of Poseidon. Because Telemachus rejects the violent hubris of these domineering male gods, He creates the conditions whereby Odysseus can finally come home. But when Telemachus finally finds Odysseus, he's already on Ithaca. He's already home, but he's blocked. He can't reconcile himself with himself. The gods become the external excuse that Odysseus must overcome in order to be reconciled with his son and with himself. So the Odyssey, says Kester Bruin, is a litmus test for works of genuine piracy, whereby the old order ends up transformed and reinvigorated. But also, for the father as the symbol of the empire, the symbol of power, in the father-son relationship it is the heresy of the son that creates the conditions for the reinvigoration the renewal of the father that's true for Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader it's true for Telemachus and Odysseus but then what about the prodigal son this famous story of Jesus told by Luke in his gospel a man has two sons The younger asks for his share of the inheritance, an extraordinary act, essentially telling the father he wished he was dead. He takes the money, goes off and spends it abroad, and then eventually a famine hits. He runs out of money and he has to work with the pigs. He decides he'd be better off in his father's house, so he comes back, and as he's on the road, his father's waiting and runs out to greet him, welcomes him home, puts a ring on his finger, a cloak on his shoulders, and kills the fatted calf, saying, my son was dead and now he's alive. It's a story told as a metaphor for the welcoming love of God to all who return. But what if, says Kester Bruin, the story is in fact a tragedy. What if the son escapes the clutches of his father by taking his inheritance, knowing that his father would still be well enough off to have servants and fatted calves? That the son leaves the constraints of his father's house and travels abroad to share his money around? But when times get tough, the lure of his father's house is too strong And he wants to go back and just be a servant so he can work up again to leave. But when he's welcomed, he's given a ring and a cloak and a fatted calf. And it's too difficult to leave that warm embrace. The tragedy is that the son returned. And the elder son, who had looked to him as a model of freedom, is bitterly disappointed. It's a tragedy because... The order is maintained. The empire is sustained. And the God from whom we had to escape has us in his clutches once more. All of this pirate talk is about agency. It's about who has the power, the autonomy over their lives. Who has the power to decide what happens to them and what doesn't. What they think and what they don't think. How they live or don't live. The story that I told from the prologue to Genesis through the maiden voyage was a story in which there was no stable original. And that matters deeply to this story. Identity and choices are always in motion, always being negotiated. And the pirate is the symbol for this unstable negotiation. The pirate exists at the edge of a centre. There is no pirate without an empire. There is no son without a father. There is no transgression without a law. There is no individuation of the self without a mother. Now, of course, I mean this metaphorically. People's real-life relationships are structured in all kinds of ways. But the pirate move to find a zone of autonomy temporarily, on the outside, is one of the deepest and most fundamental parts of our human experience. And it's how this story in Genesis begins with Terah leaving the city of Ur, having lost his youngest son. We assume, of course, that Haran died in Ur and then Terah took his family out of the city and that Haran, the place where Terah and his family settles, is named in memory of his son. But after this reading, I wondered what if Haran had already gone, that he was dead in the sense that the younger son in Luke's parable was dead to the father, that he had walked out, left the imperial city and headed up the Euphrates. And that in the end, his father, Terah, is redeemed and reinvigorated and makes the journey himself and settles in the place that the son had named already. Either way, this is the story of a father who turns tragedy into courage and leaves the safety of the imperial city to set out for somewhere new. And then with Abraham, it's the story of a son who leaves the safety of his father the prodigal son who doesn't return. And in the story that follows, we'll experience, like with Odysseus, the different gods that vie for Abraham's attention. The complexity of the drama that takes place in the marginal space of Canaan in between the two great empires of Babylonia and Egypt. This entire second voyage, everything that happens in these first five books of the Bible, takes place in some temporary autonomous zone. This is the story before Joshua. There's no conquest of the promised land. There's no monarchy or temple. This is in some ways a pirate story, a pirate law, a law on the outside, an innovation. And yet after thousands of years we now come to this law as the very epitome of European imperial hegemony. The great empires of this world have been structured from it, birthed by it, regulated according to it. So the story of Abraham and all that follows is going to be a story about agency, about who has the power to decide. Gods, the patriarchs, the sons, the fathers. Women, men, slaves, masters, priests, the people. And do the temporary autonomous zones we create involve death to the gods themselves? It's going to be quite the adventure, my friends. But that's all we've got time for this week. Get in touch. Say hi. Tell me what you think. I would love your feedback. Uh, give us a rating if you can on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And join us next time for more stories beyond the horizon.